who was Moses Drury Hogue? These are some words from the Richmond Dispatch, the newspaper. The dawn of Friday, January 6th, 1899, brought with it to the people of Richmond, Virginia, the knowledge of an event, which in the heart of everyone was as a public calamity. And the occasion, grief for all. The animating spark of the so endeared citizen and minister, Dr. Hogue, had passed gently to God. His death was not unexpected, but it was not the less sorrowful. Scarce ever has the rubric gem, faith, hope, charity, been more impressively and touchingly exemplified in man. And in not another have the elementary virtues, it is felt, more abounded. Indeed, words seem at fault and inadequate to depict a life so benignant, so beneficent. I stand right now in the same pulpit where Dr. Moses Drury Hogue, the first pastor of this church, spent almost his whole life. He served from 1845 when the church was founded all the way to 1899. 54 years. Only a very few pastors in any century or in any denomination can claim to serve a church for two decades. Moses Hogue served this church preached from this pulpit for more than five decades. And the span of those years, late antebellum Virginia, civil war in Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy, post-civil war and reconstruction, and all the way to the end of the 19th century. Those 54 years experienced major changes and challenges. 14 different governors lived in the governor's mansion down the street. 15 different presidents of the U.S. from James Polk to William McKinley. Those years had Hogue overseeing the strengthening of this church in faith and in prominence. From the building of this sacred and beautiful sanctuary the widening of these transepts, the building and construction of the chapel that's so beautiful, and 54 years of people and personalities, meetings and ministries, policies and programs to nurture the faith and life, God's work through this particular church. We have two biblical texts for today. First from the prophet Isaiah from chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And then we have a verse from Galatians from chapter 6, verse 9. So. Let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if 
we do not give up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Two singular verses, one from the prophet and one from the apostle. Moses Drury Hogue preached so many sermons and almost all of them came from one verse or a few verses. So it seems as we think about who he was and how he lived, those two verses can really help us. Moses Drury Hogue was born on the campus of Hampton Sydney College in 1818 where his father, Samuel Hogue, was a professor and his grandfather, also named Moses Hogue, was the college's president. Moses Hogue's other grandfather, Dr. Drury Lacey, had also been president of Hampton Sydney College. As Brian Blunt reminded us uh, in this reminded us in his sermon earlier this month, all of Hogue's life are connected significantly to three great institutions, Hampton Sydney, Second Presbyterian, and Union Seminary. When Moses Hogue was two years old in 1820, his parents moved to Ohio. Moses' father was against slavery. His parents took the family out of the South. His father served as a Presbyterian minister and then later as a professor at the University of Athens in Ohio until his untimely death in 1826 when Moses Drury Hogue was only eight years old. For the next seven years, Moses and his widowed mother and siblings remained in Ohio with Moses' mother mostly making ends meet by renting out rooms in a boarding house. When Moses Drury Hogue was 16, his mother packed him up, put him on a horse, and sent him to live with his uncle in Newburn, North Carolina. His uncle tutored him in preparation for his enrollment at Hampton Sydney. Hogue excelled at college. When he graduated, he finished number one in his class. And then following his father and his two grandfathers and his four uncles to become a minister, he enrolled in Union Theological Seminary. Following seminary in 1843, Hogue could have ventured off to accept the call of a number of churches across the South. He had so many family connections around the Commonwealth. He also had gifts for leadership and preaching. But it was the pastor of First Presbyterian Church Richmond, William Plummer, who envisioned Richmond adding new Presbyterian churches and this captured Hogue's attention and his imagination and his allegiance. One year later in 1844, Hogue married Susan Wood, also from Prince Edward County. A year after that, Hogue was named pastor at Second Presbyterian Church in Richmond, 1845. Some people ask, why is it called Second Presbyterian? Well, this church emerged from First Presbyterian in this very location. Uh, and many people voted against this particular spot because they thought it was too remote, too far removed from the center part of town, which is in Churchill, and too remote to build a faithful congregation. 
Well, from then on, for 54 years, Moses Hoag gave his attention to the building of this church, both the structure and the ministry. In 1847, he wrote this about the building. It will be the most beautiful church in Virginia when completed. I do not mean the finest or the most costly, but in the best taste, the most symmetrical, the most pleasing to an educated eye. You cannot separate the beauty of this church from the vision and the leadership of Moses Hogue. We are still benefiting from his vision, from his sacrifice, from his leadership in advocating for such a grand place for his preaching and for the worship of God. What was it that's the key to success for Moses Hogue? Was Hogue just in the right place at the right time, starting a new church in Richmond as Richmond was prospering and growing toward the West? Or was it his charisma and his leadership that helped to establish the church and the church's prominence in this city? Clearly, the two are intertwined. The influence of Moses Hogue and the prominence of this church in the city of Richmond, they go right together. Hope seemed to have, Hogue seemed to have an unusual charisma and an important confidence about him. He was tall, he was handsome, he was even described as looking like a military leader. His passion was preaching. He didn't just preach here, he also preached in a building down in the market and he preached all around the country. He was committed to gathering people together to enamor them with God's word. He designed this very pulpit for his preaching, a pulpit where every seat in this sanctuary can be seen from this pulpit, except for maybe one seat behind the organ that Charlie Cook always loved to sit in, that one space that's invisible from this pulpit. This week I called Mary Ackerley, the last descendant of Moses Hogue, connected to our congregation, and I reminded her that I was preaching on one of her family members, and she said, oh my, Alec, just don't preach as long as Moses Hogue preached. His sermons were always long, long explications of scripture, long explications of theology, page after page, lots of oration, lots of detail. That was a different era. That was a different style of preaching, but obviously he was quite skilled at preaching. This is also a comment about him. His profound Christian experience and his thorough knowledge of the human heart enabled him to suit the gospel message to every class of sinful humanity. And this, his mind was eminently logical, but his reasoning was overlaid with an exquisite res rhetoric, which, while it detracted nothing from its strength, imparted to it a never-failing charm. Before he was 35 years old, this preacher at second had been elected moderator of the Synod and a trustee at Hampton, Sydney, where he served until his death. He received honorary doctorates, not just from Hampton, Sydney, but also from Washington and Lee, and also from Princeton University. 
He was elected moderator of the Presbyterian Church U.S., the larger denomination at its meeting in St. Louis in 1875. He traveled extensively representing Southern Presbyterian at Southern Presbyterians at international gatherings. During his life, he crossed the Atlantic 16 times. All of this reflects his stature among Presbyterians, his head high above his shoulders. He always presented himself uh, with piety, with intelligence. Hogue also had a deep commitment to serving others. Almost as soon as he became pastor of Second Presbyterian in 1845, he felt a call to serve in the U.S. Army as an army chaplain in Texas during the Spanish-American War in the late 1840s. Others tried to dissuade him because he had new duties in his new congregation, but he wrestled sincerely with a sense of call to preach and comfort soldiers in a far-off battlefield. That call did not work out. He stayed in Richmond, but when the Civil War started, that call reemerged, and he displayed courage and conviction, ministering to troops and connecting with Confederate leaders. And perhaps it's in this role with Confederates that his life and his commitments get far more complex. His contributions to the Southern cause, to the Confederate cause, create both a claim for him in his day and raise heartfelt questions for us in our day. During the Civil War, Hogue would go almost every single day from this church down to the Capitol at noon to pray with the leaders there. The Capitol was occupied by President Jefferson Davis and others. All of this was motivated by his desire to serve God, to comfort, to be a healing presence. But there exists here a growing problem. Cultural context can cloud Christian commitments. Daily duties can distract us from the real justice and the purposes of God. Personal ties can prohibit us from seeing what God really expects of us. When we get so focused on the immediate, we can lose sight of God's larger plans. We can drift away from working for the coming reign of Christ, which is about the lame walking and the blind seeing and the oppressed going free. And it's about the value of every single human being. Hogue's life and his relationship to slavery is a bit perplexing. When the Civil War broke out, he was not initially in favor of secession. Hogue had offered freedom for his slaves, slaves whom he had inherited from his, mother's from his wife's father's estate. Only one of those slaves left for freedom. Freedom for slaves was complicated in those days. But then when Virginia left the Union, and joined the Confederacy, Hogue went totally along and devoted the coming years 
and even his preaching and teaching from this pulpit to the Southern cause, to the Confederate effort. His sermons offered flaming support for the Southern way, which was built on the enslavement of people. So many people. As much as anyone from this pulpit and with his life and influence, he weaved together the idea that slavery and Christian faith can coincide together. With thousands of Confederate soldiers gathering in Richmond in those days, they were added to this congregation. It is estimated that as many as 100,000 Confederate soldiers heard the gospel from the lips of Moses Hogue. Did they hear the gospel? Or did they hear some cultural accommodation of the gospel? Often Hogue would travel to the actual battlefield and while the battle was ongoing, he would minister to the spiritual needs of the men. Courage, conviction, commitment. Once he even sailed through the naval blockade to England to bring Bibles back to the men and women of the Southern cause. And the Blanton book, which gives so much of the detailed history of this great church, shares conversations of Moses Hogue defending the Southern causes and slavery in England to people who were generally opposed to slavery but allied to the South because of commerce. This created an appropriate awkwardness for Hogue, but it did not sway him or his strong commitments to the Southern way of life, which was built on slavery. On the evening when Richmond was evacuated in 1865 as the war was coming to an end, Jefferson Davis and his cabinet fled the burning Richmond. Moses Hogue was with them. And he stayed gone with them for six full weeks. He lamented deeply the loss of the Southern effort. The Southern way of life, he called it, quote, the dark providence of God. This was his life. He had used this pulpit as a spokesman for the cause and his life was forever linked to Confederates, to white supremacy, to the Southern way. This is where I want to connect those words from the prophet Isaiah. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Moses Hogue envisioned and built this great church. His preaching, his leadership touched many lives. He brought distinction to this church in the city of Richmond and beyond. But his allegiance to the Southern life, to the Southern cause, means that Isaiah's words have more of a sting than a ringing affirmation. There is much about this leader and about this preacher that is admirable and effective. There's also much about him that does not line up with the amazing grace of God, the faithfulness of God's care for all God's people and the prophet's reminder that ours is a God of justice. Actually, Isaiah chapter 52 comes after a long pause of God's silence 
when the people had been carried off to Babylon, when the king had been killed and the temple had been sacked and God's people were left lost and without hope, the prophet comes and the prophet says, how beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of the messenger who announces peace and your God reigns. The faithful messenger always announces that it's God's governance that matters. The faithful messenger comes to confirm that God cares about justice for all people, not the southern cause, not the enslavement and oppression of a whole race of people. Moses Hogue was so caught up in the culture, the southern cause, he was blind to the injustices that were in front of him. Moses Hogue was so connected to society and to southern ways that he failed to recognize God's purposes and what it entails. In this way, he helped to set the course of Christian faith and injustice that we're still working on, that we're still wrestling with, even in these days. White supremacy, white fragility, and racial injustices have been perpetuated far too long. And let me be fully honest, and I hate to admit it. If I had been the first pastor of this church, instead of the 12th pastor of this church, I have to recognize that I might well have done the same thing blind to injustice, blind to God's full call for life for all people. We all know the power of culture. We know, especially in these days, how we can all quickly become complicit, complicit in activities and policies that contribute to injustices. We all know how blind we can become to the realities of life, we live our own experiences. We feel faithful even when we're far from it. This is why the journey of faith is so importantly a journey. We never arrive. God is always working on us. And thanks be to God for God's continual care and calling for all of our lives toward loving and serving a God of justice. Recently, Walter Brueggemann made a comment about the cultural events that are happening right now in our cities and across our land in these, in these days. He said that the cultural crises of our culture are proving that white, patriarchal, cultural, capitalist hegemony cannot fulfill its promises. Too many people are left out. Too many people are left behind. This is what is at work in the current cries for racial justice. We need the reign of God to emerge. The prophet, the messenger of God reminds us, your God reigns. We need to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with our God. What is it that makes for a good legacy? What is it that makes us noble? On Friday, November the 4th, 1898, Moses Drury Hogue was heading home after consoling a bereaved family in Richmond when he suddenly heard the clanging bell of the trolley as it rammed into his buggy. 
he was thrown into the air and he landed on his right side on the stone pavement and he was severely injured. Dr. Hogue suffered with his injuries for two months until he died. He was buried in Hollywood Cemetery next to his wife Susan who had died 30 years earlier. His grave is in proximity to the number of presidents who are buried at Hollywood. The records show that thousands of people line the street in homage to this city's preacher and leader. As we look back, those words of Galatians challenge us. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. In a recent piece in the New York Times, there was this. We must face our racial history and our racial present. We cannot solve a problem we do not understand. Donald Trump would not be president and George Floyd would not be dead if after the Civil War our nation had committed itself to reparations, reconciliation, and atonement for the land and the people that colonizers stole and sold and plundered. Ever since, our nation has been trapped in a cycle of intermittent racial progress followed by backlash and the emergence of new and improved systems of racial and social control. These cycles have been punctuated by various movements, uprisings, and riots, but one thing has remained constant. A majority of whites persistently deny the scale and the severity of racial injustice that people of color endure. The psalmist says it so well. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Let us not grow weary in doing what is right. We do not give up. We press on, grateful and learning from the legacies of those who've gone before us. And we seek to be so inspired, freshly inspired to live and serve as God's people for justice, for peace, for light that moves us and moves the world toward the promised and coming reign of Christ our Lord. May it be so. Alleluia. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, to turn from you is to fall. To turn to you is to rise. To live by your spirit, to pursue your justice, to spread your light and love, well, that is to abide forever. We seek that way, following Jesus. Amen.